This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. I get asked all the time what I would take if I could only take one supplement. The answer is invariably Athletic Greens. I view it as all-in-one nutritional insurance. I recommended it, in fact, in the four-hour body. This is more than 10 years ago, and I did not get paid to do so. With approximately 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients, you'd be very hard-pressed to find a more nutrient-dense and comprehensive formula on the market. It has multivitamins, multimineral greens complex, probiotics and prebiotics for gut health, an immunity formula, digestive enzymes, adaptogens, and much more. I usually take it once or twice a day just to make sure I've covered my bases if I miss anything I'm not aware of. Of course, I focus on nutrient-dense meals to begin with. That's the basis. But Athletic Greens makes it easy to get a lot of nutrition when whole foods aren't readily available. From travel packets, I always have them in my bag when I'm zipping around. Right now, Athletic Greens is giving my audience a special offer on top of their all-in-one formula, which is a free vitamin D supplement and five free travel packs with your first subscription purchase. Many of us are deficient in vitamin D. I found that true for myself, which is usually produced in our bodies from sun exposure. So adding a vitamin D supplement to your daily routine is a great option for additional immune support. Support your immunity, gut health, and energy by visiting athleticgreens.com slash TFS. You'll receive up to a year's supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your subscription. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash TFS, as in Tim Ferriss show. Athleticgreens.com slash TFS. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm -mm -mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Good morning, afternoon, and evening, you sexy little people, and even you large people out there. This is the Tim Ferriss Show, and in this episode, I will be having a long discussion, and I hope it is an interesting discussion with Ryan Holiday. I've known Ryan Holiday for quite a time now, uh, since 2007, South by Southwest. That is when we first met, and he has helped me with a number of my book launches, including The 4-Hour Body and quite a lot of The 4-Hour Chef. He is very, very clever, very unorthodox, and he got an early start. Uh, he is known as a media strategist for controversial clients like Tucker Max, best-selling author and founder of American Apparel, Dove Charney. Uh, he dropped out of college at 19 to apprentice under Robert Green, known for the 48 Laws of Power and other best-selling books, went on to advise many other authors, multi-platinum musicians. He is director of marketing at American Apparel, where his work has been profiled all over the place, and he's had to deal with everything from lawsuits, scandals, uh, huge opportunities and everything in between. Uh, his strategies and approaches in handling good and bad situations have been used as case studies by Twitter, YouTube, Google, on and on and on and on. Uh, he is a good friend, very smart, uh, very in control. We'll delve into tactics, philosophy, his new book, and much, much more. I hope you enjoy it, and thank you for listening. Optimal minimal. At this altitude, I can run flat out for a half mile before my hands start shaking. Can I ask you a personal question? Now it is in the broken time. What if I did the opposite? I'm a cybernetic organism, living tissue over a metal endoskeleton. Tim Ferriss Show. 
So Ryan, to start off, I suppose we could talk about our mutual love of stoicism and how we both fell into the throes of philosophy. But yeah. for many people, I think they, they, number one, don't know perhaps the origins of how you encountered stoicism. I'm, I remember one of your friends, one of our mutual friends, telling me about how you were one of the, the odd ducks out who was fascinated by stoicism in high school. Uh, I think that is part of the story, but maybe you could give us a little bit of background on how you you ended up encountering all these various characters historically and getting into it. Yeah, it was weird. It, it, it actually wasn't high school. I was, I was in college. I was, a, I was writing for a newspaper and I got sent to this conference that, um, that Dr. Drew Pinsky, like he has a show on HLN. He's the host of Loveline. He was like leading this private session with college journalists about, and I, so I sit through the whole thing, and then after I walk up to him, and I don't know what possessed me to do this, but I asked him if he had any books that he would recommend, because he seemed like a very smart person who read a lot. And uh, he was like, you know, I'm reading this this book about this philosopher named um, Epictetus. Uh, and it's a philosophy known as Stoicism. I think it's really good, and you should check it out. Um, and so I, I went, and I, you know, I bought it on Amazon. I still have, like, the Amazon receipt, so this would have been, like, 2006. Um, so I bought it, and then I bought this other book um, called The Meditation of Marcus Aurelius, which Amazon like suggested, you know, when they, they link purchases. And the Marcus Aurelius, this was before Amazon Prime. So Marcus Aurelius comes first. Um, and I sit down and I read it and it just, you know, totally blows my mind in the way that like a, a book can blow the mind of a 19 year old uh, boy, I guess. Um, <laughs> Ty- Ty- Tyler Cowan calls them like quake books, like books that sort of shake everything. And it, it was that for me. It was like this book that totally turned my whole life upside down. And at the time I'd been, I would, I just got dumped by this girl that I dated for a super long time. And I was, you know, like deciding whether I wanted to do this college thing or not. And it was just this book that was like, it was the perfect book at the perfect moment. Um, and it, it's, it's philosophy. Yes. But as, as you know, it's, it's philosophy that you can actually read that helps you with actual problems that you're dealing with. And so it was, it was the perfect thing. Um, and I got introduced to it by the guy who does calls about STDs on, on the radio at like from midnight to 2 a.m., um, which is not what I would have expected. But, you know, the rest is history. Yeah, it's funny. I, I actually had, had no idea, which is hilarious given how much we've talked about this type of thing before, that that was how you were introduced to all of this. So Dr. Drew also deals with uh, – is very involved with a number of nonprofits that deal with, say – uh, heroin addiction. And, mm-hmm. and, uh, I can imagine why he would pick that book up as a side note. What year of college was this? If you remember, and secondly, not the, the year itself, but were you yeah. freshman, sophomore, et cetera. Secondly, how was Marcus when he was penning this notebook, I suppose that became meditations. And then lastly, what type of decisions did you make as a result of reading the book? Yeah, sure. So, I was just starting my sophomore year of college, and I ended up dropping out at the end of that year. And I think we met, if I remember correctly, like a few months later. And you you quote Seneca in the Four Hour Work Week, and I think that was one of the things that we connected by. Yeah. Um, yep. So it was it sort of all was happening at the same time. But Marcus Aurelius he wrote Meditations, as far as I understand, while he was emperor. Um, so he would have been in his thirties and forties. He died fairly young. Um, we don't know what, like, we don't know how long he was writing the book. Um, 
like there's a few places that allow uh, historians to 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 date it somewhat, but we don't know like what each specific meditation was referring to or why. We just know that he was writing them usually at night um, during during what would only be a very stressful job that you would have to uh, you know um, decompress about every day. Right. Um, and so, so for me, I like, you know, when you go through a breakup, you are usually you're angry, but then you're also sort of not self-loathing, but you feel crappy and worthless and you don't know what to do. And so for me, it was this idea of like, like, look, get off your ass. Uh, this like, you can make the best of this situation. Like, what are you going to do about it? Um, so I, one of the things that I that I did when I read this book was it it sort of sent me down this path of other things to read. Like he says in the book, he says like sort of go directly to the seat of knowledge um, in terms of like how to learn. Mm-hmm. And so uh, he, he actually says like throw away your books, go directly to the seat of knowledge. So I sort of did both. I I, I went and I read every book that I could about philosophy, about life, uh, biographies, and and that set me. You know, I've, I've read hundreds and hundreds of books since then, but I also, you know, um, snagged these mentors that showed me like real life, um, and 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 they they taught me things in person. And I think I think that's when I learned that this idea of philosophy and like a life of doing things and being successful and working were not at all mutually opposed. I think a lot of people find philosophy and it just sends them down this rabbit hole of books and they get further and further removed from reality as a result. And so that this did not have that effect for me. And how would you, I I feel like philosophy, we talked about this when I uh, originally uh, proofed, uh, early, early, I guess, drafts of uh, The Obstacle is the Way, uh, your latest book, uh, that, you know, philosophy, selling philosophy is problematic, right? Sure. It, because the, I think the term for most people brings, it conjures an image of the uh, schmuck in Goodwill Hunting in the bar sure. who's paraphrasing literature without giving any credit or some like, tortured graduate student at NYU who loves to sort of quibble over semantics of right. words that, that really at the end of the day, the, the, the argumentation is just a lot of fancy tail chasing. And that that's, I think a very mainstream interpretation of this word philosophy. How do you view philosophy? How do you, how do you present totally. it to people so that it's palatable or attractive? Yeah. So when I sat down to write the book, I, I, I totally empathize with that. No one wakes up and says like, hey, like I need philosophy. They say, you know, I have this problem and I need a solution to this problem. Well, it turns out that historically that's what philosophy actually was for. Um, specifically stoicism. Like there there's a great quote from from Henry David Thoreau where he says, like, you know, to be a philosopher is not about like having subtle thoughts or founding a school. It's it's about solving the problems of life, not theoretically, but practically. And um, I think the Stoics understood that much earlier, you know, like 2,000 years ago. Um, Cato, who you've written about, mm-hmm. um, what, was, was considered to be a philosopher, but not because he wrote anything down, but because of how he lived his life. You know, mm-hmm. Socrates didn't write anything down. Um, Epictetus, uh, 
we only have his lessons because a student of his wrote them down as notes. Mm -hmm. Um, And Marcus Aurelius is like, you know, he wanted to be a philosopher, but he was in line for the throne. And so he had to mix his philosophy with being the most powerful man in the world. Mm -hmm. Um, And so what I think is really interesting about Stoicism, and I talk about this in the book, is when you you look at it and you see that it has this – it tends to have a resurgence when times are really, really bad. So like – it was stoicism was very popular during the American Revolution. Like um, hmm. uh, George Washington uh, read the Stoics as a as a teenager at Valley Forge. He actually put on uh, a play about Cato, which is one of the most popular plays in the world at that time. Um, Thomas Jefferson died with a copy of Seneca on his nightstand. Um, and then during the Civil War and in the Victorian era, you saw another resurgence of stoicism. Stoicism was big during the industrial or the the. Yeah, the American Revolution, the Industrial Revolution, the Enlightenment, uh, the Renaissance. And then, you know, it was also like Marcus Aurelius was living in the decline and the fall of the Roman Empire. Like, it doesn't get much worse than that. And so it's basically at its core, it's this philosophy that says, like, you don't control the world around you. You only control your response to that world. Um, And so that's a very practical and beneficial philosophy when a lot of things are happening around you that you wish weren't happening. Mm-hmm. No, that makes, that makes perfect sense. I can't recall how I was first introduced to Seneca specifically. I had read at some point or been forced to read, I'm sure some excerpt of say yep. Epictetus or meditations, uh, probably in college. And as with most things you're forced to do, uh, mm-hmm. most likely did not find a lot of joy in it, but, uh, Seneca really grabbed me and I, I don't want to go into a long story of why that's the case, but so you have this, let's just call it the, the, the trifecta of, of stoicism or, or the big three, right? You've Epictetus, yeah. Marcus Aurelius, Seneca. It seems like Marcus is primarily your guy. I don't know, but it, I, I've, been, I've been very curious to see how different people resonate with different Stoic thinkers. And I'm curious, yeah. number, number one, who your primary influence is, and secondly, why you think that is and why you th- how you think different people are attracted to different Stoic thinkers. Sure. Well, it's interesting, too, about philosophy. Like, most people are never forced to read the Stoics because professors don't like them as much because there's not as much room for interpretation. Like, it's pretty straightforward. (laughs) Um, And I I think that's why you like Seneca. Uh, I like him as well. It's like, he's just saying, he says these sort of very timeless, um, imminently practical truths in a straightforward, clear way. And they talk about they talk about it in the context of like our actual problems. Like they talk about, hey, like you know, Seneca will be writing a letter. It's like, hey, like you know, I heard like your wife died. Like here's some advice. Yeah, um, or I, hear, it's like, I hey, hear you're getting slandered in the Senate, or there's a lawsuit pending. Yeah, here are my thoughts. Yeah, totally, totally. So I, I, I like you. I lean towards Seneca, but also Marcus Aurelius because they were two. Uh, like Seneca was was one of the the most six financially successful men in Rome. He was an advisor to Nero. He was a sort of famous tutor and playwright, but he was also skilled at investments. So he was he was very financially successful. So when you read his stuff, he's dealing with the sort of the same timeless problems that anyone who has success or or works in business deals with, you know, bad 
um, bad markets, uh, you know, luxury. You know, he's just sort of dealing with all the temptations of business that he's talking about. So I like him a lot as well. Um, personally, I like Marcus Aurelius. I, I like the, the the notion. Like, what what's so fascinating to me about him is he was literally the most powerful man on on earth like he was worshipped as a god in his own lifetime he could do whatever he wanted and you read this book that he wrote primarily for himself and it's just like notes about self-discipline about being a good person um about like forgiveness about you know honor about um being treating people well um I, so I, that's where I like it. I, I get the most practical benefit um, in terms of like leadership and um, you know self-awareness and stuff like that. So that's why I like Marcus Aurelius. Although I will say, I think it's funny, like you read this book and at the beginning, Marcus Aurelius is like sort of thanking all the people who like gave him lessons. And like one of the lessons he learned was like not raping his slaves. Um, so... <laughs> So it's like it's sort of pretty. It's it's very. It's on the one hand, it's very relatable. Like he congratulates himself for never having laid a hand on his slaves. So you can sort of take a, you, you know, it, it gives you a pretty clear idea of what he's alluding to there. Um, but you you realize like it's very relatable, but then also very foreign at the same time. Right. But you know, I, I mean, how what other foreign like what other person in that position do we have a document about their thoughts like when you could you could literally do anything you wanted without repercussion here's a guy like writing notes to himself about you know being a good person not taking advantage of everything that he could take advantage of you know not uh, like forgiving people and on all this stuff which i which i take a lot of personal value out of and and i think his writing is so clear and straightforward and it's it's written in this sort of uh, it's written in these epigrams that are easy to remember. Mm-hmm. Um, then there, Epictetus is great too. He's a little more luxury, yeah. um, and because he was the, a teacher, get, so like yeah. you're getting the lectures. Gets into the cosmos a bit too, and in, in uh, some pretty esoteric ways that aren't immediate. They're they're more abstracted. I think more, yeah, professor friendly for interpretation. He, he's the most religious of the philosophers of the Stoics as well. Um, which uh, personally not being a religious person doesn't have the same amount of, of relevance for me. Like when you read Marcus Aurelius, he's not talking about like Zeus and stuff, um, which, you know, I think makes it feel a little bit more relatable. And it's definitely the same is true with, with Seneca. Like you, if, if someone, if someone, if you'd never heard of Seneca and someone took his works and translated them and took out all the anachronisms, you could very easily fool someone into thinking this was written like in the last decade. Oh, for sure. Yeah. No, that's that, that for me, uh, was critical. And uh, I mean, my, the way that I try to define philosophy for people who have never read philosophy or who have been put off by philosophy uh, as they perceive it is, you know, this is an operating system for making better decisions in your life. That's it. Mm-hmm. And uh, I found it so incredibly powerful. You brought, you mentioned something uh, just, just a moment ago about Seneca being one of the wealthiest uh people in Rome, uh, if, right. n- if not the wealthiest at one point, I mean, I- extremely shrewd investor, investment banker, financier. And th- let's 
talk about stoicism for a second because the word stoic or stoicism has developed modern connotations that I think perhaps, uh, turn people off of mm-hmm. the concept of studying something or reading something called stoicism. And, uh, I remember a quote, I don't remember the attribution, which was, you know, most, most people face life with the same stoicism of, as a, as a cow standing in the rain. And, (laughs) uh, and I think that people, uh, a very common perception of stoicism, and perhaps this is true for some people. Uh, I mean, Cato seems the most kind of Spock like in a lot of ways is that you, you do, you feel neither pain nor joy. You are just a, a, basically a cyborg. Uh, and the goal is to not experience emotions whatsoever. Right. And, uh, also I think people perceive it as, uh, asceticism or foregoing all of your worldly possessions. And, and of course, Seneca was very highly criticized and continues to be highly criticized as, uh, you know, the op, the opulent stoic, like how can he talk about foregoing riches or, and I, I'm, I'm kind of laying this one up because I've obviously read right. a lot about this, but, uh, I'd love for you to talk about how you would reconcile, um, some of those things like does, does yeah. stoicism, is it compatible with material or financial success or being famous or are they completely at odds with one another? Sure. Well, look, I think Weirdly, I think since both of us are authors, we can very relate. We can very much relate to the problem that's happened with the Stoics over the last two thousand years, which is it's a bunch of people psychoanalyzing people they've never met based on their work, and <laughs> right. and over the generations, it it builds on itself. And the problem is what they're forgetting is that the Stoics were. It's a philosophy that's designed to solve certain problems, and specifically only those problems. So. You know, Marcus Aurelius isn't writing notes to himself at night that says like, hey, like women are really pretty, don't forget, or like, hey, you should laugh and have a good time, or like, you know, (laughs) money is nice. Like he's not, no one needs like a reminder of certain things, right? Right. And specifically, since he was not writing a book for other people, he was writing a book um, for himself you could i think you can safely like you can safely assume that he's writing reminders to himself about the things that he's particularly bad at right right, right. um and so it's it's a selected deliberately selected view of a person who's struggling with tough things in their life he's not again trying to explain a systemic worldview that you should keep in mind. He's working through problems in his own personal way. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and maybe if Seneca had had different friends that were really somber and sad all the time, he would have written them different letters. Like Cicero was a Stoic uh, or studied Stoicism, and, and there's more joy in his writings, um, maybe just because it was a totally different situation. So we, we, what I want people to keep in mind is that Stoicism is not about being sad or not having emotions. It's about keeping an even keel and not getting upset or delusionally happy either. And so I, I actually think there's a core tenet of optimism in Stoicism. Like yeah. I call the book The Obstacle is the Way, and it's based on this exercise from Marcus Aurelius where he's saying, like, look, um, it doesn't matter if you're trying to do something and you get blocked. This is actually an opportunity to practice virtue. So like basically what he's saying is like hey i know this thing that you that happened that you think is bad it's actually good and it's actually a, a chance for you to do good things to me that's like 
that's cheerful and that's happy and that's that's the kind of attitude of someone who never gets depressed because they always feel like they have a way out and i think what the stoics were saying is like if you go around thinking that the world is great and that it's always going to work out exactly how you plan and that people are always going to treat you well like in in one of the things marcus reminds himself that tomorrow when he wakes up people are going to be rude they're going to cheat they're going to steal they're going to argue with you they're going to do all these things he's doing that so he can go out and interact with them in a positive way rather than feeling let down and pissed off all the time right right so yeah, so I think that's super important, and I think that's something that's totally been missed from Stoicism, and I think that's why you and I are attracted to it and find value from it in our lives. It's not like confirmation of our pessimism or cynicism, and on the contrary, I actually feel like it's intimately connected with being happy and fulfilled as a person, yeah. um, and that's why I don't think it was a contradiction at all that that Seneca was successful and seemed to genuinely enjoy his life and, and was you know, had had financial riches. I think um, Nassim uh, Nicholas Taleb is another person. It, it's the point is making money is usually a result of being successful or good at something. It can also be a result of luck or fortune. Um, and having it doesn't say anything good about you, and it doesn't say anything bad about you either. And the only problem that really comes from wealth, well, there's a couple problems, but being financially successful and, and I, you know, I, I'm, I'm not a millionaire, but I'm, I'm doing well. There, there's temptation uh, to, you know, spend money on, you know, negative things, let's say. But the real problem is thinking that you need this money to survive. And so it's funny, like, Seneca has this reputation for being opulent, but in Letters to a Stoic, he talks about actually practicing poverty, like one day a month, pretending that all his money was stolen or lost, and that he's walking the streets as a homeless person. Um, He's doing that so he can enjoy his wealth while he has it, but never feel like it's integral to his survival or, you know, existence as a person either. Right. Right. No, it's... It's been, uh, I, I think, you know, not to, not to bring Fight Club into this, but, you know, <laughs> the things yeah. we own end up owning us. And I think there's a big difference. And this might actually be a Thoreau quote, uh, who had his own contradictions like we all do. Yeah. Uh, I heard he used to sneak off and have big meals at Emerson's house while <laughs> he was at the, uh, <laughs> at Walden. But, uh, and that is that, you know, the problem is not having riches. It's when riches have you. And totally. I think Seneca, uh, comments on that quite extensively. And, you know, the problem is not having wealth. It's when it, it becomes a source of sort of fear and greed and it dictates how you behave, uh, as opposed to being a tool therein lies the problem. So besides, uh, besides obviously these, these fantastic uh, works of literature, uh, or I suppose that might not even be a fantastic uh, label. I mean, in some cases, they're war journals of, of sorts. Right. Uh, t- coming back to seeking out mentorship in real life, teachers in real life, uh, was Robert Greene really the first person to take you under his wing in that in that way, or are there? Uh, was there someone else who was a pivotal teacher to you? Uh, sure. And how did that come to be? Yeah. So um, 
So actually, before I met Robert, I, I was working with, with Tucker Max, who we both know. Right. And Robert, um, of course, just to give some context, maybe you could explain, give some context yeah. on both of them. Yeah. So Robert Greene wrote The 48 Laws of Power, uh, The Art of Seduction, and The 33 Strategies of War. Um, and then I, I met him in you know, 2006, 2007. I was in college. I met him through Tucker Max, who's another number one New York Times bestselling author, sort of known as a, as a really good sort of internet marketer and, and, and thinker, and then also a, you know, does crazy things. Um, but I, I met, uh, Tucker showed me about marketing. He introduced me to Robert. Robert really showed me about writing and researching and learning. Um, and I worked with Robert on his, his last two books. He wrote one called The 50th Law, which is about fearlessness with, with the rapper 50 Cent. And then he wrote one called Mastery, which is about you know, becoming a master at whatever it is that you do. Yeah, great um, book. Yeah, I, I love it. It was like an honor to be a part of it. Um, so those were my my two my my two mentors in in like sort of direct mentorships. But I also think like you know how did you just to, not to interject, but yeah. how did you just in the sort of the details, the nuts and bolts? How did you f- initially connect with Tucker Max? How did sure. you initially? It, it all goes back to this college newspaper. I was writing. I had a column there, and I decided I would use it to as an excuse to write articles about people I wanted to meet. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I wrote a review about Tucker's website, and I emailed it to him. And we just started this relationship, and then I would just email him and ask questions. Um, so it's funny. I think you probably see this. Like people think mentorships are these like very official relationships, like the way that an <laughs> apprenticeship was like your parents basically sold you to someone in exchange for like room and board right. for a certain number of years, and then you officially learn a trade. Like a mentor is anyone who um, you learn from, who gives you advice and and teaches you things, and you don't actually have to meet them for them to be your mentor. Seneca talks about this. I forget who he's talking about, but he says, like, you know, find yourself someone that you can use as, like, a benchmark or a a ruler to compare yourself to so you can decide when you have, you know, difficult choices, like, what would this person do in this situation? How would they act? What should I do here? Um, and so, like, I, I would even say you are you are definitely one of those people. Like, I w- we don't have some official mentor-mentee relationship, but like, you've taught me so much, and I've, I've I've asked you questions, and and hopefully, like, you know, it's it's gone both ways. But like, you're older than me, you're more successful than me, you've taught me things, and that's what I think a mentorship is. And you can have that with basically anyone. I think a lot of people they hold out for this, like sanctioned official relationship <laughs> rather than just like learning from anyone who has wisdom or advice or value that they could pass your way. Um, and that you, and if you put it into practice and you do something with it, they see value in that as well. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And I appreciate the kind words, obviously. Uh, <laughs> like you I... were the one, you were the one who like, I, I was studying stoicism it was interesting to me. And I think I mentioned it to you and then you encouraged me to write an article about it for your site, which sort of set me down this whole path to begin with. Um, and so I, I think, you know, it's it's weird how these little conversations can have such a big impact on your life. Um, but it, it just depends on, I think, you know, how people respond to and treat the opportunities that they get that often don't look like opportunities when they, you know, sort of first make their appearance. Oh, definitely. I mean, Jack Canfield, who co-created Chicken Soup for the Soul, was uh, is largely responsible for the four-hour work week becoming a book. And mm-hmm. 
it was just one or two offhand comments that he made to me that were encouraging in the early days that, that produced the proposal because it coincided with a bit of downtime. And he effectively helped force my hand by making introductions that led to conversations wow. with agents. And, uh, it's, it's, it's incredible how in the case of, uh, of Jack, you know, he became a mentor to me, uh, because very similar to the newspaper, I used volunteering for tech nonprofits as a way to meet the people I wanted to meet, uh, because wow. these events would put on the, these organizations like the Silicon Valley Association of Startup Entrepreneurs. It's a mouthful, but SVASE, uh, or Thai, the Indus Entrepreneur put on large events uh, every few weeks or every quarter. They'll have an event where they bring in thought leaders and their panels and so on. And so I, I volunteered for the, for SVASE when I first moved to Silicon Valley in 2000 and, uh, really just kicked ass as a volunteer for a few months and continually took on more and more and more responsibility until I was invited to sit in on the, uh, board meetings, uh, just as an observer basically. And they were talking about their next, uh, main event, I think is what they called it. And, uh, I just kind of raised my, they're like, well, who are we going to get to do this and manage the event and wrangle the speakers? And I just kind of shyly put up my hand as I was like, I was like, I'll do it. I'll take care of it. And, uh, so they handed it over and I put together a panel, uh, God, what was it called? It was called something like, you know, Titans of consumer products or something. And I invited you know, the, the creator of the, uh, the, the clapper and the pet rock. I invited <laughs> the guy, uh, Ed Bird, who is sort of the, jointly responsible for popularizing creatine in the United States as a athletic supplement, which was a huge, huge deal. Uh, the founder of cliff bar, uh, Jack Canfield and so on and so forth. And, uh, got to know Jack by inviting him to this event and having a bunch of emails back and forth. Uh, and then over the years, you know, asked him every once in a while, pretty, pretty rarely would ask him very specific, short kind of life questions. Uh, and, uh, that's how the whole thing came to be. So in the case of uh, Tucker, for instance, how how long after you you initially introduced him to the article you wrote did you start asking questions? Over what period of time? Uh, you know, how frequently did you email him? I think this is something people need to understand because asking someone to be a formal mentor is like the absolute best way to never have a good mentor. <laughs> I totally. Think. Because it's like, hey, you want to sign up for a, like a, a, a unpaid part-time job because you're so, you have so much free time? It doesn't work. Uh, so I'd just be curious to hear sort of uh, what you did and what you would recommend people do if they're trying to find uh, or looking for that type of, of teacher. I think mentor is problematic because they think of it in such formal terms. But what, maybe you could talk on that point. Yeah, totally. Um, I think it was like it was once it was once every couple weeks uh, or no, a couple months probably. Um, and I would just ask like questions that I thought um, would be easy, would be helpful to me, but very easy for him to answer. Right. Um, and that's what you know. It's like, hey, if you want me to read your manuscript, that's like a lot of work for me to do. Yeah. Or this this would be more for you. If someone if someone wants you to read their manuscript, you're like, okay, that's like a week of my time. Yeah. If someone wants you to to give a five second instant opinion on a title, you're like, sure, that's that's one email. Right. Um. And so I think people don't think one, they don't think about you know what they're actually asking, and then two, um, 
they they ask a lot over and over again. When when really it, it's actually interesting. There's this thing called the Ben Franklin effect. I don't know if you know this story, but uh, about um, the lending library or the uh, yeah yeah. Why don't you tell the story? This is such yeah. a great story. So so Benjamin Franklin. There was this this member in in Congress or one of the things about the American Revolution or. I don't really remember where it is actually, but Benjamin Franklin faced this sort of enemy in a legislative body who he desperately needed his support, and they seemed to be intractably opposed to each other. And what Benjamin Franklin did was he heard that this guy loved rare books and had a prized library of rare books, one book that he valued above all the others. So Ben Franklin being a somewhat bold man, walks right up to this guy and just asks him if he can borrow his most prized possession. And the guy sort of like stunned is like, um, I, I guess. Benjamin Franklin borrows it, just puts it on his shelf for like two weeks, doesn't touch it, doesn't use it, and then returns the book to the guy. Um, and what he finds is that having borrowed this guy's most prized possession, they now have not only the shared connection – but the guy has to justify in his head why he would loan this thing that's so valuable to someone else. And so he starts to tell himself this story that Benjamin Franklin must be good. He must be someone worth loaning this thing to, sort of using cognitive dissonance to your advantage. Um, and basically, it's been, it's been verified um, you know, by psychological studies since then. It turns out that when you do someone a favor, you actually – feel indebted to them and or like and you you would think that doing someone else a favor would make them indebted to you in fact asking something small of them in some ways can build a better connection because now they're like invested in you and um i would try to ask questions or think about things that they would they would like and that they would you know feel like they got value out of too um and and that's something that you know I, I, it's like a subtle sh- psychological shift that people miss for some reason. Yeah, it's uh, Ben Franklin's such a fascinating character. I really enjoyed reading Walter Isaacson's uh, biography of Ben Franklin, uh, which leads me to ask you: I mean, uh, which which historical figures do you find most instructional, helpful? I mean, who are the, who are the figures outside of the Big Three Stoics that you sort of repeatedly? look to as your own benchmarks or to learn from? Um, yeah, there's, there's obviously a bunch. Um, you know, in the book, I really, I, I talked a lot about Ulysses S. Grant, who I thought was really interesting and a sort of a totally underrated, underappreciated historical figure. Um, I talk about um, John D. Rockefeller, who I thought, you know, and, and again, all these people have problems, and so I don't want it to descend into like hero worship of any kind. It's you—you you look at the people and you look at the good that they bring to the table, and you focus on that, not on you know the negative stuff. Um, but uh, I talk about Ulysses S. Grant, William Tecumseh Sherman, who is another Civil War general I'm really interested in. I think um, Richard Feynman is a fascinating character, yeah, definitely, who, who asks all sorts of interesting questions, and he. He had this what seemed to be this sort of joy and curiosity to him that I that I appreciate a lot. Um, Cyrus the Great is another really fascinating character yeah, who definitely, was definitely. who was again one of the most powerful people in the world, but seemed to be universally regarded as a good person and not in like a propagandist way. Um, so those are you know those are some of my favorites. I, I don't I don't think it's a stretch to use fiction either. Like I, I find it weird that 
people don't look at fictional characters as hmm. either good examples or bad examples. So who are who are some of your fictional favorites? Um, well, the, one of my favorite books is this book, uh, What Makes Sammy Run by, by Bud Schulberg. It's about this hmm. Hollywood uh, screenwriter. It's like a young Jewish kid um, who's like a total hustler who's like – endlessly ambitious and it's sort of um it's it's very gatsby-esque um the the book but the the point is this guy's like hustling and running all the time but he never stops to question why and it actually he like the you know the the moral conclusion of the book is that he gets everything he wanted and it's like the worst thing that you could ever wish on someone right um and so that's something like i try to think about a lot too it's really i think it's it's about finding the people that you relate to in fiction or nonfiction, and then seeing what you like about them, like you like about yourself in them, and using that to bring out more of it, and also seeing what you don't like about yourself in them, and using it as a cautionary tale. Right. Uh, that's uh, that's a really good point. Yeah i I have a few books on my bookshelf facing out. Uh, you know, I just moved into a new place, so I had the chance to organize my books however I wanted, which was a, a delightful and extremely time-consuming, monkish process for me, being as OCD as I am. But the the uh, one of them is Zorba the Greek. So right. you know, Zorba, it's just such a great cautionary tale for me because you have like the 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 uh, intellectual slash want to be intellectual who's very introverted and spends too much time tail chasing in his own head versus Zorba who's so engaged in the moment, etc. Uh, you know, very maybe Epicurean in some ways. And, uh, yeah, that's really interesting. Also have Dune. I thought, uh, you know, a number of the characters in Dune were very, very interesting. Uh, stranger in a strange land as well. Um, so let's, let's look at, where you are now, because I, I, I'm, I've been continually impressed by how, at what a young age you have accomplished certain things, whether that's, uh, responding to, uh, huge responsibilities at American apparel with marketing, responding to those criticisms publicly dealing with all, all sorts of difficulties, uh, not difficulties, but challenges that we all have, but professionally on a, on a pretty public scale. Um, you're 26 now, is that right? Yep. Yeah. All right. So this is your third book, which, uh, just to put it in a chronology, I mean, the four hour work week, I guess it was published or written when I was 29. So you're, you're still three years ahead of me with three books. <laughs> uh, what, to what do you attribute the, your ability to get shit done. I'm just very curious as to if it's like, well, you blend my two parents and here you are. Like, that's how my right. parents are. This is how I am. Uh, how much is nature versus nurture? I mean, what has contributed to your ability to, to multitask and also to get this, this much stuff done, uh, at this age? I'm curious to hear your, your opinion. Sure. Well, I mean, look, so obviously I had two smart parents. They inculcated in me, you know, a love of reading and questions and sort of told me I could, you know, do whatever I wanted with my life, like, which was, which was all very helpful. Um, and I wasn't like someone who came from, you know, and I talk about the, those type of people in the book, the people who came from sort of nothing or worse than nothing. And that's why they were successful. That's not me. Um, uh, and then I, I had these amazing mentors, which were very helpful. And I, I also have a big head start on people. I mean, I dropped out of college when I was 19 years old. So I've been doing this 
for a long, like most people my age started at 21 or 22. Right. Um, so they're sort of just getting started. But, you know, that being said, I think I actually, and the reason I wrote this book is because stoicism was like, I can trace all, so much of the good stuff in my life to specific passages in Stoicism that helped me or made me think about you know certain things like this idea of the obstacle being the way that there's no such thing as bad things happening to you that everything is an opportunity to like prove yourself or to do something good is is something that's been you know enormously beneficial to me. There's also a, there's a quote in Book Five of Meditations that I used to have printed up on my wall, um, and it's this conversation where. Um, Marcus is sort of actually having it with himself, like it's dialogue, but he's like, um, so you're waking up in the morning and you're, you know, you're covered in the blankets and you know, you should get up, but you say to yourself like, but it's so warm here. Like I want to stay here. And, and he's, he says like, but look, you're a human being. Your job is to get up and work. And it's like, what do you mean you've, you've worked enough? Like would, would an animal say that? Like would an animal ever say that they were, they'd done enough work? Um, and then he says like, you know, people who love what they do wear themselves down doing it. They forget to eat and sleep. They just work because it's not work. It's it's who they are. And I think for me, getting stuff done has been a function of, of being able to start having that conversation with myself when I was, you know, 19 years old rather than like, you know, partying late at night and then waking up hungover every day. Like I didn't do that. And But it, it it's I, I really think it's the cumulative process of waking up every day and going to work and like really working and not caring about the rewards or the success, but working because I love what I'm working on mm-hmm. that, you know, compounded interest is one of the most powerful forces on earth, right? And you can apply that to your own work. And every day if you wake up and you work on something, you get a little bit closer and it 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 grows. And I think that's you know, that's, that's been, you write one book, it's easier to write another book, you know? Um, and then you write two books, it makes it easier to write a third book. And, um, I've, I've never been a fan of doing just, I think you're like this too. I don't get how people do just one thing. Like I, like you're really good at investing, but could you just do that? I don't think that would fulfill you as a person. Yeah, I I couldn't do that alone. And I, I think it's weird, but I found that the more things that you're doing, the better it's like okay if you do one thing you can be really good at it if you do two things you feel really busy but if you do like three to five things you're not that busy and they all help each other and make you better at them so for me like writing and marketing and like you know research and all the things that I was doing at the same time made me better at all of them and it sped the whole process of learning up really fast when you are most productive how often are you running because i know that that is another part of your life or at least historically has been yeah so um i run almost every day i started um i i run every day but then i i also you know from some of your stuff and other people i i know it's not the best thing physically for you so i usually do crossfit like two days a week um and then I try to swim one day a week, and so I run the other, the other days. Right. Yeah, I found. Uh, I think long walks are also very underrated. Totally. Uh, <laughs> which, uh, yeah, I mean, we could, we could go through the long list of people who have said that historically. Yeah, uh, well, but, I actually I yeah. try not to think about. I, I definitely don't think of walking that way, and I actually try to not think of running that way. Almost not as exercise. Like I yeah. think it's better for your. It's 
has a better impact on your brain than it does on your body. I agree. Um, definitely walking. It's like I, I've written huge chunks of my books because I went for a walk and then I had a breakthrough that I wasn't expecting. Yeah, I think <laughs> I think it also it might be uh, Anand Talib who also doesn't yeah. tr- doesn't trust people who won't go for a walk <laughs> when they speak with him. Uh, I could be ex- I could be just making that up, but I'm I'm pretty sure I'm not. That sounds uh, about right. Yeah, it sounds about right. Or and then he'll sprint to imagine. What did he say when he when he has to? Uh, motivate himself to sprint. He will think of like running after the head of the Federal Reserve and smashing them with a <laughs> baton on the back of their head or something. <laughs> He's a hilarious guy. Uh, who do you turn to? Actually, let me let me back up to to a separate question. You're a prolific reader. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have a sort of recommended reading list that's quite popular, an email list that people subscribe to. Yeah. Uh, And I've really been impressed by your synopses of the books that you read. But uh, for someone who is not an avid semi-full-time researcher like yourself, uh, what are are the top, say, you know, two or three books that you either discovered or delved into while researching The Obstacles Away? I mean, if you had to pick your top two to three, you're like, all right, if you want to maximally gain in whatever way, I'll, let, I'll leave it open to, to you. Sure. Read these two or three books. Like if these are the only two or three books you read this year, you'll, yeah. be, you'll be better off for having Okay. Well, I'm looking at the bibliography right now and uh-huh. some that jumped out of me that were total favorites. Um, Ron Chirau's, uh biography of John D. Rockefeller, which is Titan, the, the life of John D. Rockefeller, was like a total game changer to me. It was an amazing biography. Um, I like Sarah Bakewell's book, How to Live. It's like a series of essays about Montaigne, who invented hmm. the essay. Yeah. Um, he's really fascinating. Sarah Bakewell. Hmm. Cool. Um, I like, uh, let's see. Oh, I read this book. Um, the uh, the fish that ate the whale, the life and times of America's banana king. Um, he he was this uh, a totally fascinating but relatively unknown historical figure who started he started a a fruit company buying spoil like the the day old not day old but the about to expire bananas um, that would be imported in like late eighteen hundreds America and he would sell them. Um, like he would sell them by train car. He ends up he ends up buying United Fruit. He starts a small fruit company that he grows to be so big that it buys United Fruit Company, which is the biggest fruit company in the world. Um, so that's why he's known as the fish that ate the whale. He's this sort of fascinating uh, Jewish businessman. Um, I read a really good biography of Edison um, by Matthew uh, Josephson called Edison, a biography. Got it. And if there was any others, I'm trying to think. Yeah, th- those were some. Oh, and I read a really good biography of Ulysses S. Grant called Ulysses S. Grant Triumph Over Adversity. Got it. That I loved a lot. Cool. Just writing these down myself. <laughs> because uh, cause I need another 20 extra books on my Kindle that I haven't read. I'm just kidding. <laughs> right. I want to give you some more 700 page biographies because I know you need more of those. Uh, very cool. The fish that ate the whale. That is a fantastic you, moniker. Yeah. You, that one's really short and you'll really like that guy. He was crazy. Um, 
and he he was like the uh, I don't I can't even describe. It. You should just read the book. It's amazing. The writer that wrote it, um, uh, Rich Cohen, wrote another uh, amazing book called Tough Jews, which was about like J E W S, right? Um, about Jewish gangsters, uh. like basically like the people that you see on um on Boardwalk Empire. Yep. Um, he's an amazing writer who you'd really like. Cool. Uh. So I view books oftentimes as as tools, right? Yep. Uh, uh, part of the toolkit for making these better decisions, uh, obviously, and enjoying life at the same time. I, I do love reading. Uh, what other t- are there any other tools that you use or rituals that you have had consistently and found useful? Uh, so I'm curious. Maybe we can start with the, the second part of that. What is your what is the first six like sixty to one hundred and twenty minutes of your day look like? When do you wake up? What is what is your morning routine look like? And then maybe we can talk about your your daily routine, if yeah, there, if there is one. So I try to wake up somewhat early, like seven thirty to eight. I'm not always successful at it. Um, I, so I try to wake up early, and I try not to check my email in the morning mm-hmm. if I can. But I'm not usually successful at that either. But um, I try to sit down and I write for like the first hour to two hours in the morning. Mm-hmm. Um, I find that there's less going on. There's less people bothering you. Um, there's a great writer. Uh, he has a site called Farnham Street. His name's Shane Parrish. What um, is the name of the site? Farnham Street, F-A-R-N-A-M. Okay. Um, and he wrote an article recently where he's like, look, the number one productivity secret is just wake up early. Yeah. Um, because there's less going on. You're more productive at the beginning of the day. So I try to get my writing done in the morning, like whatever I'm working on. I try to like bust out an article. If I'm working on a book, I try to tackle a chapter. Um, I just try to, I try to write in the morning um, for an hour or two. And then I sort of get to work from then when everyone else is kind of waking up and getting going. Right. Okay. And then uh, what, is, what does your day look like from that point forward? Yeah, I usually go out to breakfast. Uh, I try to eat at the same same restaurant every day rather than like you know deciding what I want to have for breakfast. What do you eat? Um, uh, usually three eggs and two sides of bacon, so I get a ton of protein. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I'll have like guacamole or something with it uh, if I want to um, liven it up a little. Um, <laughs> get some non-animal matter. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, although I got chickens at my house, so I don't always go out anymore. I, sometimes I have fresh eggs at the house. And you're um, in you're in Austin. Yeah, I live in Austin. Um, and then I then I go to work. Like I, I have a, a one index card that I write usually the night before my list of things to do that day, and I try to keep that list like pretty small, like five to seven things usually. Yep. Um, and I cross all those things off. They could be small things like email so-and-so, or it could be like, you know, write chapter three. You know, it could be big thing or a little thing. I cross those lists off, those things off. And then the rest of the day is like just responding to stuff that's happening, whether that's emails or phone calls that I've scheduled or meetings that I have to do. I try to avoid as many meetings or phone calls as humanly possible. Um, how do you how do you go about doing that? Are you diplomatic, or what's your approach to deflecting meeting requests or coffee dates and so on and so forth? Yeah, Paul Graham actually has a great essay about this called "Maker versus Manager." Oh, it's such a good essay. Yeah, that's a um, that's a great piece. But it's really hard. Like you're someone who fits in this category when you're both a maker and a manager. Yeah. Um, like most most makers are deliver are just not good at doing the other thing, so they don't do it. It's hard when you actually have stuff you have to manage. Um, 
but I try to, I just, I just say like, Hey, like sometimes I'll just lie. I'll say like, Hey, I'm traveling. I can't do the phone (laughs) or, um, like, Hey, I really prefer email. Like if we can hammer this out over email, I'd be much better. And I know that sometimes email takes longer than doing a phone call because you have to go back and forth. But the point is it doesn't interrupt what you're doing and it does it like on my schedule. Um, so right. that's what I, I, I just try to be upfront about it. I just say like, hey, like, look, I really hate email um, or I really hate, you know, jumping on the phone. Can we just do this over email? And most people are understanding. And the people that aren't, I either don't care or I understand that they're more important than me and they get to pick, they get to dictate the terms, <laughs> you know? Yeah, it's, you know, I'm, I'm glad you brought up the point about, uh, well, number one, uh, I have the exact same habit with index card. That That is uh, the finite surface area I find uh, yeah. much like Parkinson's law helps to refine how you prioritize. But the 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 point you made that I think is really important to underscore among others is that just because email might take slightly longer does not mean phone is better. Uh, and uh, similarly, you might choose a slightly longer driving route because it's easier to remember and it's more scenic. Oh, that's uh, a great analogy. As opposed to being like, yeah, I'm going to sit through like horrible traffic with people honking where I have to really pay attention the whole time and can't daydream. Uh, but it's 15 minutes uh, shorter right. route. And there's, you know, a, a really important question or an important question that I've learned to ask myself. And I don't, I'm sure I didn't create this, but I don't remember the attribution if I didn't. And that is, um, it's not whether you can afford the time or not. It's whether you can afford the distraction. Yep. And, uh, you know, that's why it's like, yeah, it might only take you five minutes to call someone, but you and I both know if you're writing something or if you're a coder, uh, that could mean you start over, you start the clock from zero and it's going to take you 45 minutes to get back into the flow of what you were doing. Yeah. Uh, what, what, speaking of flow and writing, I mean, what, uh, what do you, I, I think that, you know, I admire your writing because it's a reflection of clear thinking and, and I, I'm wondering what you see as the most common mistakes that writers make. What are some of the most common mistakes where you, you, you write for quite a few outlets online and, uh, you're really prolific. You, you write a lot more than I do. And, you know, I'm envious in a way that you're of your output. What, what are the, what are the biggest mistakes that you see writers making, not professionally necessarily, but just like stylistically, uh, uh, editorially, what are, what are some of the bigger mistakes do you think? Yeah. Well, I think it's weird. I write a lot, but I think I write a lot out of humility. Like I'm trying to get better. And I think that the only way you do it is by making commitments to write a lot, publishing and sort of getting feedback. And like, so I, I, you know, three books in, in three or four years is, is a a lot, but plenty of people do more. The articles are designed to make the books better. That's the way that I think about it. Um, but I think a couple mistakes that writers make one they don't have anything to say. They they think that writing is good. Like they they think that writing is the skill that is scarce and good. Like putting sentences and words together right. is is good. It's like look, I would read a biography written by someone with like a seventh grade education if what they were talking about was fascinating. You know, like I'm I'm like, have you ever seen that thing where it's like? 
they they take a bunch of sentences and they take all the vowels out or they move the words right, around right. and you, and you can, can still, still read, it. read it. Yep. Yeah. It's not the technical skill that's rare. It's having something interesting and compelling to say. So I think that's yeah. the big thing is people don't have that much to say and they focus all their time on technical writing rather than like saying something that's never been said before. Yeah. Um, but I, the this maybe ties into that, but I see a lot of writers who who start writing before they've figured out exactly what they plan to say and who they're saying it for. Like they're trying to find the point while they're going. Um, And so I like, I use note cards to organize my research and like, I very rarely write anything that isn't fully outlined and sketched out, especially books. So I like the writing is the easy part, figuring out what you have to say and doing the research and bringing something new to the table. That's what's special and rare. Mm -hmm. Um, so I try to that's I, I focus my energy on the finding the stories or the thing that I'm bringing to the table that no one else but me could bring. Mm-hmm. And I think far too many writers um, skip that. And that's why we get these crappy bulleted lists or, you know, on the other hand, like an 8000 word article that like could have been 20 percent of the length. Um, and, and so I think those are those are mistakes that writers make a lot. Um I think also just not being honest. I think a lot of people are either pretending and like puffing themselves up with their writing right. or they're hiding something like James Altucher. Who I, was we both just, know. I was just going to mention James. He's so good at doing the opposite. Yeah. He has this rule where he like, he writes the thing that he doesn't want anyone to know about himself. Um, <laughs> like he, like whatever he's afraid to say, that's what he wants to write an article about. And look, sometimes that ends disastrously and he gets in trouble. But most of the time, it creates this vulnerable, authentic voice that people who people relate to because no one else is saying these things. And, and that's what your job – your job as a writer is to touch something inside of the audience. And you can't do that if you're, if you're lying to yourself. Yeah. No, definitely. Huh. Uh, I, I find, I find writing process just endlessly fascinating. Uh, totally. Steven, Cause no one does it the same way. Yeah. Everyone's different. Um, uh, that's, that's one thing I realized really early on. Like there are, there are best practices for marketing best selling books. Mm-hmm. There are <laughs> very, very few consensus about the best way to write a best reading book, if that makes sense. I mean, that's part of the sure. reason why. I fell in love with Daily Rituals, which profiles, you know, 170 or so uh, world famous creatives, whether it's writers, composers, scientists, et cetera, and, and how their daily schedules are, are laid out because they're so different. Um, it's, it's really fascinating to me. Um, do you watch documentaries? If so, what, what, are, uh, what are your favorite documentaries that come to mind? I love documentaries, uh, but I don't watch that much like TV. So I don't get to watch as many as I like because, um, yeah, but, uh, some favorites. I like fog of war, I think is amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, that Phil Spector documentary from a couple years ago was pretty crazy. I think it's called the wall of sound, but I, I forget what it's called exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, there's the, the guy who did uh, fog of war has a new one out about Donald Rumsfeld that I want to see. Um, called the the unknown known hmm. um but my i love ken burns i've watched like pretty much every ken burns documentary you could ever see including all 10 hours about the civil war 
and all 10 hours about the national park system. So hmm. I think like what I, I love, I love when you like, I'll, I love any art where the person doing it is clearly like the master of their craft. Right. And to me, Ken Burns is like the best person who ever lived at documentaries. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how anyone could beat him. And so it's like, <laughs> I'll watch, you know, and 10 hours about national parks, like, because it's that good, even yeah. if you don't care. Right. Um, so I think I, I love his stuff. Yeah, that's uh, it's funny you mention that. That's how I feel about uh, John McPhee as a nonfiction writer. Totally. I mean, he's he's uh, for those people who don't know who he is, he's a at least a one time, maybe a two time Pulitzer Prize winner. And I was fortunate enough to have him in seminar uh, for nonfiction writing called the, the class was called the Literature of Fact when I was an undergrad for one year, which was amazing. It was really hilarious too to get back a three page writing assignment and to have more red ink from him on the page than black ink. <laughs> <laughs> you re- you really feel like a dumbass when you realize how sloppy your thinking is when you get something like that back. But you know he's written books on everything from an entire book on oranges, an entire book on one tennis match. Yep. Uh, an entire book on hand carved wooden canoes, uh, a book on Plymouth rock. I mean, it's just, the breadth is so amazing, but if it's written by him, I just don't care. If it was a book on chopsticks, I'd be like, absolutely. I'll read a 200 page, 300 page book on chopsticks written by John McPhee. <laughs> right. I love, he has that one, uh, control of nature. That's really mm. fascinating. That's yeah. just about like, it's like about the Mississippi river, some volcano in Iceland and like, the hills of Los Angeles. And you're like, this should not be fascinating, but like I'm hanging on every word because you're so good. Oh, it's so, it's so good. I mean, chances are he's been writing for so long. He's been a staff writer at the New Yorker for decades and decades and decades. I think he's got to be in his seventies or eighties even now. But, uh, I remember researching the four hour chef and I was like, I bet there's something that, that McPhee has written on cooking and food and I bet it's sure. gonna, and I bet it's going to be one of the best pieces in the English language and lo and behold there is this piece from uh, sometime in the maybe 80s called uh, Brigade de Cuisine written about this tiny restaurant in New York and just this maniac executive chef and it was it's like all right there we go like yep the best I've ever read about cooking or food and of course it's John McPhee yeah so totally <laughs> uh what's uh what are some of your goals for this year? Uh, I'm just, I'm very curious to know if, if, do you believe in resolutions that are long-term resolutions? Is it tiny habits day by day? I mean, what are some of your goals, uh, whether for this year or, or, or shorter term? I mean, how do you, or longer term for that matter? Uh, sure. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Uh, I, it's not that I don't believe in goals. It's actually been a weird, and this sounds, I'm sure, like a humble brag, but it's a genuine problem. So, um, or a first world problem. Like, like I, I wanted to write books. Like that's what I wanted to do, and um, I like I wanted to be a writer. That was my my. That's thing. what, but, that's what you I, wanted to be, even growing up. Is that what you thought you were doing? Right. Be? Yeah, and so to I accomplished it very early, and and now it's 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 like okay, now what? And but there's no, I don't have like. Well, now I want to be the biggest author in the world. Like part of one of the benefits and then also consequences, I guess, of stoicism is that it's very humbling and it, it sort of helps filter out like very selfish or materialistic goals, I would say. So like I'm not like, oh, I want to, I want to have millions of dollars or I want to have hundreds of millions of dollars. Like it, it's like, 
but I'm quite comfortable. I would like to continue to be comfortable, but like that, that ambition is somewhat sated. Um, I'd, I'd like, I have more book ideas, so I'm, I'm in the process of thinking about and potentially selling another book. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'd like it to take longer and I'd like to challenge myself in ways that way. Um, I think, um, you know, I've, I've, uh, I may get married. Well, I, I'm engaged. I'll probably get married this year. So that's like something I, I think like in a lot of ways, <laughs> I, would, um, I would hope you would have some plans for getting married <laughs> or if there was just like, no, I figured out the engaged part, but I'm not sure right. on the marriage part. Right. <laughs> Right. Well, no, it, it's, it's like it's a, like, it's like a hold option. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. Now I, now I've got some time. Uh, I bought myself some time. Um, the option agreement. No, with the girlfriend. <laughs> right. I locked it down and now, now I'm just going to wait. Um, no, it, it's, I think I would like to focus on like less sort of external goals and maybe more ex- internal goals. Just like, you know, I, I think we're, I don't think there's anyone out there that's like, I'm exactly as like low stress as I want. I'm exactly as sort of like kind or forgiving as I want. I'm exactly as, you know, like um happy like I I'd like to focus on sort of internal personal um stuff in in terms of adjust like integrating and adjusting all the things that have come into my life over the last right. few years yep. into the kind of like everyday norm that I would like. So it's, it's not a specific thing and that might hold me back in some ways, but I I think it's, it's less about like sort of external publicly validated success and more about just like, all right, is this the person that I want to be? Well, kind of, but here are three or four things I would fix. Well, like let's focus on those. Right. So two, two related questions that are follow-ups. The first is if you, if you want to be a writer, and you write a lot. Uh, you mentioned one of the problems with a lot of writers is they just don't have anything to say. How does one go about having something interesting or meaningful to say? And how do right. you do that? Uh, let's let's begin with that, and then I have sure. a, and then I have a question about working on internal goals. Sure. So the the best writing advice I ever got, and I think it came from Tucker, but I don't remember. But it, someone asked him like, "How do you become a writer?" And he said, "Writers live interesting lives." And that's how you find something to say. Like you go and do interesting. And yes, this is true for fiction or nonfiction. Go do interesting things, experience the world, and develop some sort of perspective or knowledge or um, wisdom that you can pass along through your writing. So the four-hour work week came from your experiences running a company Mm -hmm. and then deciding to travel. and you know, my first book, Trust Me, I'm Lying, came out of my experiences in marketing and doing a specific kind of marketing and having a sort of existential crisis that came along with that. Mm-hmm. Um, and this book came out of my studies and experiences, you know, like researching and reading and just living my life in a in a high pressure, high stakes environment. And I know that seems weird, but just like the best marketing decision you can make for a product is to like have a really good product that people want. The best way to have writing that people want is to live a life and have experienced the world in a way that allows you to communicate something to people that they've never heard before. And yep. and I think it's actually especially true in fiction because you're like at least in nonfiction, you can like 
someone could go out and study and objectively find like academics can write good nonfiction books mm-hmm. um, based on their research. But nonfiction, you have to be able to communicate all these intangibles to the reader. You mean impl- fiction? Yeah, sorry, in fiction, yeah. You have to communicate all these intangibles about life and about relationships and about how the world works. And if you haven't gone out and lived it and experienced it, you're at a distinct disadvantage when it comes to communicating those things because it's like you're like the 40-year-old virgin who's trying to like talk about sex. <laughs> right, like a bag of sand. They felt yeah, like exa- a bag of exa- sand. <laughs> right. You can fake it. You can fake it until you say something that's so obviously wrong that just everyone in that instance knows that you have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> uh, yeah, good point. And I mean, that's been really my uh, maybe way of compensating for what I perceive as uh, a very imperfect writing style. I, I don't think that I am the best writer out there. I view myself as a teacher first and foremost. So my cheat has been to follow in the footsteps of someone like George Plimpton, uh, who is a really fascinating character, who's the editor of the, the Parish Review and really popularized what he called participatory journalism, where he would go become a professional football player for a season. He would go try to join the circus for a season. He would go try to box three rounds with Archie Moore, for instance, right. and, and then write about the experience. And you do not need, just to underscore what you said, you do not need to be a college-educated uh, wordsmith to have compelling writing if you have a good story to tell. It's just that simple. And uh, you know, I remember talking with Tucker about this, uh, and a lot of it really just comes down to, I think, writing in a natural voice, basically writing as you are, which mm-hmm. takes practice, but having a good story to tell. Um, working on, uh, actually, before I get to the internal goals, what does financial security mean to you? How do you define that for you for yourself personally? Uh, are we talking like specific numbers, or are we just talking about like what is what is financial security sort of generally? You know, I, but you do both to the extent that you're comfortable. I mean, it's uh, sure you know it's whatever you're comfortable talking about. It's just that I think this is such a huge uh, piece of so many decisions that people make, um, bad and good. So right. I'd be curious to know how you have sort of resolved this for yourself to the extent that you have. Sure. Well, I guess there's a couple ways to be rich, right? One is have a lot of money so you can buy a lot of stuff. Or the second, or like if you sort of express being rich as being able to buy whatever it is that you want, right? Whenever you want it, there's two ways to do that. One is to have tons of money, or two is to not want as much stuff, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think if you meet somewhere in the middle where you, you sort of you keep your tastes under control, um, like for instance, like I don't fly first class. I could afford it, but I don't fly first class because. And I have before, but the the point is like I just don't want to get in a habit of flying first class because now it means like if I want to travel somewhere, it's going to cost me X amount, right? And I'm going to have to do things that I maybe don't want to do to be able to get that money, right? And I'm going to make decisions for the rest of my life around that assumption, mm-hmm. and I don't want to have to do that. So it's like how do you how do you limit what you like there's that quote from Paul Graham about keeping your identity small. If you can keep your tastes at a level at which um, 
a reasonable salary or financial situation covers it, then you don't need to go out and do certain things for money that other people do. Like I've like to me, financial success is like I I have a house that I live in that's nice that I can keep my stuff in that I have my books in, but I don't have like six spare bedrooms that I needed to fill up with furniture because I wanted to send a message to people that I have a really nice house, you know? Right. Um, and I don't live in New York City because I don't need to live in New York City, and which means that I spend a lot less just to have the same thing, you know? Right. Um, and like I, it's like, can I, can I go to a nice steakhouse and buy whatever I want and not care what the check is? To me, that's being financially secure and about sort of what I need to not care about money. Mm-hmm. Got it. Um, and so, like, and then I think the other—it's not just being financially smart on your spending, but like, you know, do you actually understand like investing and managing your money in a smart way, so it's not, you know, like there's all these people. I, I'm sure you deal with investors uh, or startup founders or whatever who have like credit card debt, and it's like, why are you trying to like invest in startups when you could just make? 13% more a year by not paying off your, by not like having, carrying a credit card balance. You know what I mean? Right. right. Um, so I think just sort of basic financial responsibility and management helps you, helps you make what you're doing go further. Mm-hmm. Um, so like that's been beneficial to me. Um, but there, you know, there's the study about, um, you know, if you make more than, any amount over $70,000 a year does not correlate with any increased amount of happiness. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's definitely true, having made a lot more than $70,000 a year and a lot less. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, it's like, you know, somewhere, somewhere above that is happy and comfortable. Um, and the rest should just be, should be saved and managed, like the Stoics say, for a, for a much worse time because you never know what's going to happen. Don't don't spend the money you make because you might not have it and you might want it some other time. Sage advice. Yeah, it's hard to hard to predict. Nay, impossible to predict when the next black swan will hit. Uh, totally. And you know, I've been thinking a lot about this. Not to turn, not to misdirect the conversation, but the fact that much like human action and climate change uh, technology, in a sense, has led to. Uh, superstorms, um, let's say storms of the century, perhaps happening as often as every three to 20 years now, uh, which was uh, a recent, uh, s- recent piece that came out of MIT. The, uh, the insta- instantaneous uh, sort of uh, dissemination of hysteria through mm-hmm. social media, I think, greatly increases the probability of higher frequency black swans because everything is so interconnected and humans are, uh, for better or for worse, certainly in large numbers, pretty irrational masses. Uh, and I just feel like if anything, you know, these, these sort of once a century, twice a century stock market crashes and so on are probably mm-hmm. going to happen more often. Um, but that's pure speculation on my part. No, no, I I think it makes sense. And it's like, look, do you want to, like, what I, I quote this in the book. There's the line from um, uh, Warren Buffett about being greedy when others are fearful and being yep. fearful when others are greedy. And we definitely live in a time where people are very greedy. Um, and 
I think it's I think it's really important too that you you don't at all correlate being financially successful with worth as a person. Um, so the fact that you know I know someone who's worth X million and I know someone who's worth you know less than nothing doesn't say anything about their value to me as people and w- how I should respect or treat them. And if you can keep that in mind, you won't feel like the fact that so and so is making you know eighty thousand dollars a month on info products. Mm-hmm. It doesn't like the f- I know this, but it doesn't make me care about making info products like i want to write my books because they pay me enough to be happy and that's what matters so speaking of uh, sort of valuing people and different people uh this and these feel free to answer this however you like uh for for your circle of friends um Mm -hmm. number number one you know these days how do you curate them, right? If it's not on net worth, which it, yeah, I agree, it shouldn't be. Right. Uh, how do you curate your friends that you end up being the average of, right, as a group? Mm-hmm. And over over time, let's just say over the last five years, 10 years, what has become more important and less important, uh, more important or less important? It's weird. I think a big part of it is keeping like toxic, unhealthy people out of your life, like mm. people who have drama and problems and pathological issues. Right. I think those are important people, not only not to be friends with, but to you know extricate yourself from as much as possible. Um, so that's something I've thought a lot about. Um, I like people who make me laugh. I think that's important. I think people who uh, I don't have to try to impress. Um, like it was weird. One of my friends from high school was in town like over the weekend and it was like, I don't think we talked about like work at all because uh, he was doing his thing and I'm doing my thing. And what matters is that we have like a shared history or a thing that we relate over. Mm-hmm. And so to me, like, I don't know about you where when your work is also tied up in your personal relationships, I really value people who I can exist in the present moment with. So it's like, I can do something with them. I can have a conversation with them. Um, and it doesn't like the fact that, you know, they do this and I do this is irrelevant. And the fact that they live here and I live here is irrelevant. I, I look for people that like, I, I may have gotten this for you is, is like the idea of someone you can sit and have a nice long dinner with. To yep. me, that's, that's a friend, mm-hmm. not someone I have to meet at a bar or, you know, any other context. Makes perfect sense. Uh, <clears throat> if you had to pick, let's let's do a, just a couple of rapid fire questions. Okay. And uh, one to think on, just as we're doing this, is uh, I'd like to hear a story of uh, what uh, uh, Aisha T- uh, Tyler calls self-inflicted wounds. So just like okay. a ridiculous story, a debacle, a fiasco of some type that was self-created. Uh, sometimes that's involving alcohol for, for people. That doesn't sure. have to be true for you. Uh, since I don't think I, I'm not sure I've ever seen you drink alcohol. Um, but, uh, okay. First one, what is your, what would be your theme song or your like ring entrance music? If you had to choose one. Uh, um, 
I, let, let me pull up iTunes. Let me see if I have anything. Uh, I don't know. I like Iron Maiden. If I had to pick like an awesome entrance song, probably something from Iron Maiden. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, if you could change one thing about yourself, what would it be? Um, this is ironic. I don't love my voice that much. Mm, I feel the same way. Not about your voice, but about mine. <laughs> I don't, do you think there's any like anyone who's not like a narcissist that enjoys the sound of their own recorded voice? Uh, I haven't yet met them, but I'm sure they exist. Uh, I heard it's actually because you hear your voice differently. Like the, apparently, it's like when you're just talking, the voice that you hear is different than like how it's recorded, and that that's it's just the difference that makes you feel uh, bad about yourself. Uh, you know, that's an enabling belief, so I'll take it. Sure. Uh, <laughs> thanks for that. Uh, when you think of the word successful, who is the first person who comes to mind, and why? Ah. Uh, no one comes to mind. Um, well, I, I talk about John D. Rockefeller in the book, so there's an example. One of the world's richest men. Got it. All right. Uh, if you could study a new subject with any expert in the world, uh, who would it be and what would you study? Like a new subject or just a subject different than the one that I study? By new, I mean new to you. So yeah, different from what you've already immersed yourself in. Um. Yeah, I th- I think I'd love to do like archaeology or something like that. I don't know a specific person, uh, but some sort of ancient site or dig would be fascinating to me. And you spent time in uh, Rome looking yeah. at like the burial site of Seneca and so on. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. I, I spent some time in Rome when I was finishing up the book, and I just went to like the sites and stuff that are that are in the book for sure. And I was in Dublin. I was in Dublin like two weeks ago. Uh, you'll love this. They took us into this crypt, like a, like a burial site that preserves the bodies, and they had these mummies there from like the 12th century, uh, and they let us touch them. Wow. I was like, we are a long ways from America. <laughs> like, are you kidding? <laughs> we, we touched the hand of this guy who died in the Crusades. Wow. Yeah. That's... Uh... That would definitely be corned on, cordoned off in the U.S. I think so, yeah. Do not chew on the mummy. Uh, if you could offer your younger self uh, one piece of advice, what would it be? Let's, let's, let's place that. Yeah. Younger self, freshman in college. Relax. Relax. Why? Yeah, I, Why? Every young person that I – I think you probably get this too. Every young person that I talk to, I feel – especially like an ambitious one that seems to want to talk to me, I feel like they're on the verge of like a nervous breakdown or an explosion of some kind um, <laughs> because everything is so serious to you when you're that age. And I think it, maybe it's our parents that did it to us or, or whatever, but I, I feel they're like, you know, if I, I got to do this or like I'm going to die. Like it's like everything feels like like an issue of life or death, you right, know? Right. And it's so the opposite of that. It's like you are – you could – in in all of history, you are in the safest, most like uh, nerf, like bumpered area that has ever existed. Like you you could do – Anything short of murder and you're probably going to be fine. You know what I mean? Like you have unlimited time. Like just relax. Take it easy. You're not going to care about this in a little bit of time. And that's probably what I would tell myself. <laughs> so just just to uh, take a quick sidebar from yeah. the rapid fire, you dropped out of college. Uh, I feel like there is a, there is a survivorship bias 
uh, in media that leads to a romanticizing of totally. dropping out of college. Uh, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on who should, who you would advise to drop out of college, who you would advise to stay in college, because you ended up very uniquely in my experience, extremely well-read and extremely well-rounded. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when people drop out of college, oftentimes they say, well, it's because it's not going to prepare me for job X or Y or Z. Right. In my opinion, at least in a liberal arts college still is that the goal is not to prepare you for a single career. The goal is to make you a well-rounded developed human being. So I'd just be curious to know sure. what your caveats are, who you would recommend consider dropping out versus not. Yeah. So it's funny. I was looking at the, there's a Wikipedia page that's like a list of college dropout billionaires. Right. Um, and it's funny. It's like, yeah, it's the definition of the survivor bias because there's like, let's say there's 500 billionaires in the world and like 20 of them were college dropouts. That means even among billionaires, most of them went to college, right? So, um, but you only, you only care about the ones who dropped out of college. So, um, I think like for me dropping out of college was, it was a pretty simple calculation. It was, am I drop it? Like, would I stay in college and graduate and hope to have this same opportunity that I'm being offered right now? And And the answer was, which and yeah, that, and that was the Tucker opportunity. It was Tucker, Robert Green, and then working for Aaron Ray, who we both know yeah. um, at the Collective in, in Hollywood. So it was three things that in the, either one of them individually I would have killed for as a post grad job. And so I said, you know, I'm going to do this now and see how it goes. What I think people, the problem with dropping out of college that everyone misses in the discussion is that dropping out of college is not a thing. You take a leave of absence from college, meaning you can go back at essentially any time. Um, so the it's it's again when I'm saying like relax to the 19 year old version of me or whatever, it's like, dude, it's not as it's not as black and white as you're making it out to be. Like, take risks. You're you're in a cohort where you can absorb risk, and that and then understand that you're not going to starve to death if this goes poorly. Like. For me, it was like, I'm going to take advantage of this, and a year from now, if it's not working out, I'm going to go back to college because college is the best default option if you don't know what you want to do because it keeps you on the level with everyone else, and it gives you some sort of certification that sets you a- apart from like people who didn't go to college. Right. Um, so, so that's how I think about college, and usually um, – the, the, and. I'll say this, the people who should not drop out of college are the people who are doing poorly in college because college is exactly like life. It's a system that you have to figure out how to get the most out of and do your best at. And if you're failing out of college, you're probably going to fail at life because you are, if you don't address the root reasons why you're doing bad at college, you know? Yeah. So yeah, learn, learn to... Learn to game the system while you still have headgear on before. Exactly. <laughs> cool. All right. I appreciate that because it's, it's, it's something that I get asked about a lot. Uh, so it's, it's nice to have your input. All right. Let's so back. Oh, to, and one, one other yeah. note on that. It's like very, I, I always hear from people. It's like, Oh, I want to leave college so I can travel or I want to go to college so I can like start a company or get a mentorship. And it's like, these are not things that you have to leave the womb to do. Like you can do them in college. Right. And right. so if, 
it, it should be you should leave college if you have an opportunity to do something that can only be done outside of college and if you will kill your you will kick yourself if you let that opportunity pass and it doesn't come back your way again when you're graduating yeah and that's a great point actually i think that it, it would be very fascinating to look at billionaire dropouts and see how many of them had started the the company mm -hmm. that was going to later make them a billionaire and proven to themselves that it had very real legs and a time sensitive window before they dropped out. Because I think the percentage is probably very high. Right. That's what Zuckerberg did. Yeah. Yeah. And many others. Uh, mm -hmm. Awesome. So we'll take just a little bit more time. I'm going to do okay. a couple of rapid fire so people get to know you and not just your, your thoughts sure. on stoicism. All right. So you walk into a bar. What do you order from the bartender? Uh, if it's in Austin, I order Topo Chico, which is like a Mexican sparkling water. If it's not Austin, I'll probably just get soda water with lemon and lime or cider. Do you ever drink? Just cider. It's the only thing that I like. Got it. So it's not a, it's not a moral decision. It's a taste decision. It's a little of both, but yeah. Okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, what makes Mexican sparkling water different from normal sparkling water? I have to ask. Uh, I just like it better than Pellegrino, but I will say that I fully embrace the ridiculousness of eating or of drinking imported water from Mexico. <laughs> Especially Mexico. All right. Right. Uh, who is your favorite person to follow on Twitter or, uh, and you can give two or three if you'd like. Um, I like fake Jeff Jarvis, who I think is hilarious. <laughs> um, I like Felix Salmon a lot. Who is Felix? Felix Salmon, he's a blogger for Reuters. Got it. Um, and then I don't, I don't know who else. Oh, uh, Media Redefined by uh, Jason Hirshhorn mm -hmm. is a is a pretty good uh, Twitter feed to follow. Um, oh, and Maria Popova of Brain Pickings. Yeah, yeah, that's a great site. Speaking of sites, uh, what sites do you visit on a regular basis? Um, I don't visit a ton of sites. Uh, I use my RSS reader. Um, so I use Feedly, um, where I subscribe to a bunch of uh, feeds. Felix is one of my favorite. I like Tanahasi Coates, who blogs for The Atlantic. Um, I, I like Mark Cuban's blog a lot. Um, I I think Reddit, if you if you um, subscribe to the right subreddits, is a really good way to get like sort of highly curated news. What um, subreddits do you subscribe to? Uh, stoicism besides, is a good one. Besides not suitable for work. Yeah, sure. Uh, sto <laughs> stoicism is a good one. Um, uh, philosophy is a decent one. Uh, history porn is a pretty good one, uh, which is just like old photos from history. Yeah. Um, ask historians is my favorite. Uh. So smart people ask, like people ask unusual questions about history that only like academics or historians answer. Mm -hmm. Um, Today I Learned is a great one where it's just like a fact uh, that, you know, people was unexpected. Mm -hmm. um, I like First World Problems. I think that's a funny one. Um, and then is there, is there anyone? Uh, there's, there's one about Civil War. There's one about writing. And then I like Reddit Books as well. Yeah. Reddit Books is big. Yeah. Uh, the, what is the first face that comes to mind when you think Punchable? Punchable. Uh... <laughs> I don't know. That's a good question, though. Um, 
Uh, we can we can come back to that. It could okay. be it could be a fictional character too if you'd like. Sure. Uh dogs or cats? Uh dogs, of course. Why? Uh cats are just an animal that lives in your house. <laughs> Got it. And okay, so elaborate on dogs because you, you said something to me that I, I was hoping to have you elaborate on, uh which yeah. was that dogs you think dogs make you a better person. I was curious how you think they make well, you a better person. Dogs exist totally in the moment. Um, dogs are the definition, I think, of sort of unconditional affection. And I think it's really interesting to have an animal that evolves to live and depend on humans the way that dogs did. Like dogs, they think were domesticated because they, like wolves, would come and eat scraps from the um, like the campfire. And basically, we slowly selected the the most sort of docile, friendly you know, mischievous of the, of the animals. And, and that's where dogs come from. Um, so I, I think dogs are, dogs are great because they're this thing that's dependable or this thing that depends on you and, and needs you. But at the same time, you can never, you can never truly disappoint. Um, so it's this great sort of metaphor for life. I think it's a just great practice. Um, and plus, they're super cute, and they do like hilarious things. I have two pet goats. Also, I don't know if I told you this, but I <laughs> no. Uh, I have two goats, which are pretty funny. They're like really dumb dogs. <laughs> do you do you milk the goats, or do you just have them for I, for uh, comedic effect? Just mostly for comedic effect. Like I don't <laughs> like people have asked that, but I just don't have that much need for goat's milk. So uh, it's not. You have to breed them to get. Because uh, they're Nigerian dwarf goats, so you have to breed <laughs> breed them to get milk, which I'm not really interested in doing. Sounds really low yield. It's kind of like milking cats, right? Like, what do I need? Just I, then, I'm just this guy who's always trying to pawn goat milk <laughs> on people. Like, let me give you some, right? Right. Like the friend as that has delicious an as tree. Nigerian dwarf goat milk sounds. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That could become a thing in San Francisco. You could export Probably. it. Yeah. Probably. Uh, what book are you most likely to give out as a gift? Um, probably Meditations. God knows how many copies I've gone through. And then the second one would be The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield. Yeah, that's a great book. Uh, let's see. What movie can you not resisting if it's on, assuming that you had a TV in an imaginary world? Well, of course, I have a TV. I'm not a weirdo. Um, <laughs> I love TV. Um, I pro- probably uh, Gladiator. Um, it's appropriate. I like uh, Spinal Taps, one of my favorite movies. <laughs> have you seen Shaun of the Dead? No, I haven't. Oh my god, you have to see Shaun of the Dead. S H A U N. Okay. Is, it it might become one of your favorite movies. It is all uh, right. It is. Splendid. I wrote about half of the four hour work week with that on repeat on a TV. Yeah, I don't know how you do that. I have to have total total silence. Well, but. here's the here's where I am. Am a weirdo uh, among many other ways. Is I I would play the movie because I tend to write late at night, and I mm-hmm. it's easy to feel isolated and crazy and like uh, Nicholson in The Shining. Right. If if you're always by yourself, at least for me, so particularly without any dogs or anything around or people. Uh, so I would put the movies on with characters that I liked, <clears throat> and I would mute the TV and then listen okay. listen to music while that is just human motion, human forms and motion in the background. Uh, oddly enough, yeah, just just a habit that I have. Uh, 
Let's see. Uh, who was your first celebrity crush if you've had one? Celebrity crush. Or, uh, or current celebrity crush. Any celebrity crush. I don't know. Um, I really don't know. Nicolas Cage? Yeah. <laughs> I'm a big Nicolas Cage fan. Uh, D. Cook? Uh, like, I cook bacon. I can't end on that question right. and answer. <laughs> uh, if you could choose uh, three people, let's just say living people, uh, okay, to be your sort of uh, circle of advisors or elders to help you with major decisions, who would they be? It's weird. Like, so I've gotten an iteration of that question where it's like, oh, you've worked with all these people. Who else would you want to work with that you haven't? Yeah, um, and I. It's weird. I feel like very fortunate that I haven't like Robert Greene is one of the sort of most respected, you know, uh, strategists of, about power and life and and history. And like he's someone that I call when I have questions about stuff. Um, you know, I, I I think you're one of those people that I that I call, and you're a, you know a world renowned writer and marketing expert and an investor. Um, and then the the third person is my is my girlfriend now fiance who I think is really good at sort of reading people and, and more importantly she she knows me and like what my weaknesses or issues are um which i think is really important it's not just about like you know objectively what the best thing to do in a situation is absolutely it's it's like what 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 can you do given your constraints or tendencies like oh you should totally take this job well you know if you're someone who's pretty flaky that's not a great you know that's not great advice like it's it's oftentimes it's you know, what you can do with your taking you as as a person for granted who's going to behave how you've always behaved. If you can have someone who understands you well enough to give really good advice, I think that's super important. So I think that is a great note to wrap up on. How can people better or best get to know Ryan Holiday? Where should they find you online? What should they read of yours? Sure. Give us, give us some some suggestions so that people can, can dig a little deeper, which I hope they do. Yeah. So my website is ryanholiday.net. I'm Ryan Holiday on Twitter. Um, I, I suggest people start with the books too, because I put myself into the books. So the obstacle is the way, uh, trust me, I'm lying is my first book. Did a book called growth hacker marketing, which started as a a Kindle book and now it's going to be a paperback. Um, and then I write, you know, almost weekly for thought catalog, um, and then I'm on the editor at large of the New York Observer, where I have a series of columns about media and life and other things there. Fantastic. Well, Ryan, thanks for the time. Always nice to chat. And uh, this gives me an excuse to sort of uh, ask you 20 questions in a way that isn't totally socially weird over a meal. So this was amazing. Yeah, this was super fun. I will, uh, I'm sure, talk to you soon. So thanks. Thanks for taking the time. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right, Ryan, I'll talk to you soon. Bye. If you want more of The Tim Ferriss Show, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or go to 4hourblog.com where you'll find an award-winning blog, tons of audio and video interview stories with people like Warren Buffett and Mike Shinoda from Lincoln Park, the books, plus much, much more. Follow Tim on Twitter. It's twitter.com slash tferris. That's T-F-E-R-R-I-S-S. Or on Facebook at facebook.com slash Tim Ferriss. Until next time, thanks for listening. 
You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.